It's good to be zealous for the things of God. That's right. We've talked last week about the fact that it's good to be zealous in our hatred for sin. Remember, again I say, to be a good gardener, it isn't enough just to know how to plant plants. You have to hate weeds. Thank you, sir. The scripture says that we are to hate sin. God honored a man because he hated sin so much that he killed a man and a woman who were publicly displaying sin before the tribe of, of before the nation of Israel. And God honored him and said that he was going to honor that man and his family because of his hatred for that sin. God told the parents in the Old Testament, if your children are ever in rebellion to you and curse you, publicly humiliate you, bring them out before the tribe, the, all the people, and have them stoned to death right there in front of everyone. Now, again, we talk about young people getting stoned today. Back there, they didn't want to get stoned. When they got stoned back there, I mean, it was a one-time thing. God hates sin, and if we're going to come into agreement with God, we've got to learn to hate sin. Then we said, secondly, we need to repent of our past sins. Now, here Paul was talking to the church in Revelation, and he said, now, you have become so prosperous. And by the way, do you know it's an interesting thing? Groups start up that they call cults. And I didn't realize this until I was in Bible college years ago and read in a book of American religious groups that the Christian Missionary Alliance at one time was called a cult. Not occult, but a cult. Because it was different, started up teaching on healing. And that was very weird. The people weren't supposed to speak on that, you know, that Jesus, that healing was in the atonement. Finally, it became accepted in the community. Then it wasn't a cult anymore. Now it's a denomination and it's an accepted group. Jesus, speaking through John the Beloved on the Isle of Patmos, said to this church, now you have public acceptance. Now everybody loves you. And now you think that you're rich and fat and sumptuous and you have everything that you possibly need. And he says, you don't really realize that when you've come to that place, now you've actually, you're blind and miserable and naked and poor. And you need to repent of the past and get back to where you were before. And uh, I want to tell you, God wants the church to constantly be reevaluating their position. He said, I would that you were hot or I wish that you were cold, one of the two, because then I could move you one way or the other. But you're lukewarm. That's like getting inoculated to anything exciting in religion. I mean, once you get inoculated, oh, I've, already, I've, I've been around people that say, yeah, I know that already. I've already heard that. Yeah. In other words, excite me with something new. When in reality, we need to go back and get re-excited about the old things. I like what Ed says. It's not the new things that I'm worried about that I'm not doing. The things I don't know that I'm not doing is the things that I do know that I'm not doing that really concern me. And that's where most of us have problems. It isn't the fact that there's some spiritual truth that we don't know. It's just that we're not functioning and operating in the things that we do know. And then we want God to give, them, give us something new. I told you about the pastor who preached a sermon when he went to this first church. Preached a sermon and everybody came out and said, that was a wonderful sermon. Really appreciated that. He preached, came back next Sunday, he preached the same sermon. Third Sunday, and they didn't want to say anything. They thought, well, maybe he's just warming up. Four Sundays in a row, he preached the same sermon. So the sermon, so the board called him to the side room and said, look, we appreciate this sermon. It's an excellent sermon, but you've preached it four times. Don't you have any other sermons? He said, oh, I've got plenty of other messages. But he says, I'm waiting until you start acting and doing, acting on and doing the one I'm preaching now. Then we'll go to the next one, okay? I sometimes think that I could probably preach on the same subject every Sunday, and it'd take three or four Sundays for some of you to say, you know, I think I've heard that before. You don't remember from week to week what I've been talking about. Now, the next thing is in 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. We need to be zealous to hear and obey spiritual counsel completely. 
The Bible says we need to be zealous to hear spiritual counsel and obey spiritual counsel completely. 2 Corinthians 7, verse, beginning with verse 8. Paul says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. In other words, he said, Even though you didn't like the letter I wrote you, I'm not sorry, I wrote it to you. Though I did repent, in other words, for a, for a while I was sorry, but then I repented of being sorry that I sent it to you. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were for but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to what? You were so sorry that you finally turned away from it, in other words, to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repent. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Not just, I'm sorry I got caught. But godly sorrow worketh repentance. When a person has the sorrow, godly sorrow, they will see sin as God sees sin, and they'll hate that sin and want to turn away from it. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, and what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Now you remember in 1 Corinthians there was a young man who had had an intimate relationship with his stepmother. And Paul says, put that man out of the church and have no fellowship with him until he repents. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, they received that letter and they thought, oh boy, at first it made him sorrow, sorrowful. And then they began to repent and they got zealous. And what did he say the end result was? What carefulness it wrought. You became more careful. What clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. You began to get mad about sin in the church. And he said, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal and what revenge and all things you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter. You finally cleaned this mess up in your church and began to see to it that it didn't continue to happen in the church. And you became, you became changed people because you listened to my counsel. And the Word of God over and over again tells us that there is a true message and that there's a false message and we need to have our ears tuned to hear what God is saying through His servants to the church. And we need to be able to discern between that which is true and that which is false. This is why I keep saying to you, be like the Bereans. Don't just take everything that's told you as, well, that must be the way it is. The Bereans, when they heard the message, they went home and searched the scripture to see if these things be so. Now, I really wonder how many Christians you know of today, when they hear a message that they're writing notes, like some are, and they take those notes home and they go through the scriptures to see if what is being said is truthful. I heard something being taught not too long ago, and it sounded so good, and I wrote down some notes and took it home and got my Bible out and started reading it. I thought, whoa, wait a minute, they skipped over a whole bunch of truth here and a whole bunch of truth, and their conclusion is wrong. Now, had I gone out of there and said, wow, wasn't that powerful? Wasn't that incredible? What a new truth. I could have been deceived because it sounded so good. You know you can make the Bible say just about anything you want it to say. And that's why you have to find out what the context says, how it compares to other scriptures. 
in order to get a true picture of what the Word of God's really saying. And so we have to understand that there are is going to be false, there are going to be false messages come forth. And there's going to be false doctrine brought forth many times within the church. And we have to now you see it's not my re, totally my total responsibility. It becomes your responsibility to have he that hath ears, let him hear. Listen to what's being said, then say, Well, I hear what you're saying, but let me check this out. You say, Well, that takes an awful lot of time, an awful lot of work. Well, I'll tell you. It's a lot less work than going dumb spiritually. A lot less price. Scripture says my people perish because of what? Hearing too much? Lack of knowledge. Not knowing what the Word of God says. I just want to share some scriptures with you. Turn to 2 Timothy, the second chapter. Paul speaking to Timothy, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 1. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That able to teach actually means competent men. Competent men. Now how do men become competent? Second Timothy, the second chapter, verses 1 and 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. Who shall be able to teach others also. Now, Paul is saying there is a certain message that is to be preached. I have preached it, Paul said. I not only preached it, but I had some people evidently that were taking notes while I was preaching. He says, because they took what I taught them, they took those notes over and they taught someone else. And that person taught someone else. And that person, now they taught competent people. How many of you know you can cast pearl before swine, the scripture says? There's some people you're just wasting your time on. Paul says, Timothy, now I've taught you these certain things. These are eternal truths. You take these eternal truths and you sit down and share them with some other competent person that you have confidence in that will be able to take this truth and not make it as a reservoir, but rather a conduit. So they'll take it and they'll give that same truth to someone else. It really disturbs me sometimes when I realize that I study and study and study and go through the scriptures and through the scriptures and through the scriptures and I come and share something, some teaching with you and if I come and ask you two or three months later, what about this and this and this and this? If there's a tendency, well, I, I don't know. You know what? You were exposed, but it didn't take. You were exposed, but it didn't take. And I've never forgotten the illustration that preaching a message, if people do not take notes and go home and study it afterwards, is like throwing a bucket of water from 20 feet on a case of open pop bottles and trying to fill them. You might get one drop in if you're lucky. And so Paul says, now the things you teach to other men, they're not supposed to just sit there and listen. They're supposed to write that. How can I present this? Write it down and say, now, how would I present that? How would I say that? Let me see. Does the scripture really say, well, that's exactly what it says. Wow, that's exciting. Boy, I want to write this out in an outline so that I can share that with some. Charlie, come here, man. I want to show you something to you. And you sit down with Charlie. You begin to explain the same thing that you just heard from me to Charlie. And then Charlie says, woo, this is fantastic. And, and he's a competent man. He can pick it up. He writes down the notes. He goes, how many of you know that's not happening today? How many of you bring a pen and some paper and write down verses and points on all the messages. And then how many of you go home and study that during the week to see if I missed it? 
Well, we just take your word for it, Pastor Webb. No, 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 don't do that. I'm not doing it for that reason. I want you to do it because, you see, if it goes through the ear gate, you'll only retain 5% maximum, I'm told. If it goes through the eye and the ear gate, you'll retain much more. But if then you go home and study it, it'll get down into your heart and it becomes your message. If you don't know truth, you can't obey truth. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it becomes sin. When we know what is right, then we can make a judgment. Look over in the third chapter of the same book, in verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. Now that speaks of knowledge. If you've learned something, it's yours. You know what I'm talking about? I said knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is the application of those facts. Now Paul says to these people have learned, I said that Timothy has learned, but continue thou, see he not only learned it, he says now live in it. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. Now, now I want you to see the progression here. He learned a fact and he evidently studied that fact and then it became his conviction. See that? Things that thou art assured of. What's the difference between knowledge and a conviction? Say that again. Okay, okay, that's a good illustration. Anyone else? Yes, knowledge does not involve your will. You can know something, but it doesn't do a thing for you until it begins to move you to where your will says, I will. Well, that's why I showed you your conscience and showed you emotion, intellect, sensibility, and will on that chart that time. And I showed you that many times just knowing truth does not move your will. But sometimes emotions will come along with it. You all of a sudden realize this is very important and you start to get excited about it. And that emotion will cause you to make a move. Some people would never come to the altar if emotion didn't get involved in it. But once that emotion moves you, then you begin to, begin to operate in that new light and that new truth you have. Paul says we should not only have knowledge, but he says uh, you must have convictions. Now, you and I will not get convictions from just listening. You and I have got to get convictions when we hear something that's taught, spiritual counsel is given to us, and then take it home and search it out for ourselves and write it down for ourselves and look at it and study it. It can become your conviction then because not only did the pastor say that, but I see it for myself. How many of you know, some years ago I said, don't ever go out and say, my pastor believes or my pastor says. I mean, don't blame me. It's a lot more powerful to be able to go to those people and say the word of God says. I mean, they couldn't care less. I'm a flea on a, an elephant. Who am I? This is powerful. I've had more people come back to me and say, boy, people get upset with me when I tell them, it doesn't make any difference what my pastor says. What does the Bible say? Here's what the Bible says. The boy says they just stutter and stammer and finally they leave. They'd like to hear me say that I said I mean, hear, hear people say that I said it. Then they can get mad at me. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, what? Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Now that speaks to me instantly of the fact that Paul the Apostle said, I am speaking with God's authority. Now, Timothy could either receive that or reject that. This immediately separates the difference between a pastor and a preacher. A pastor is a divinely called office. A preacher is a hired speaker to me. If a church can hire a preacher, he can fire a preacher. 
They can fire a preacher. But Paul the Apostle says, the reason you can speak this with authority, you can have a conviction of it, because look who you heard it from. Now again, if we don't have confidence in those that are in leadership, then we ought to find someone that we can have confidence in. People need to hear this. I just talked to someone this past week. They had never even comprehended this, this idea of, it's my responsibility to judge and find out if I should be following such and such a person as a leader. One of them said, I just want you to know right now that in our church there are a lot of officers and our deacons in our church that have been divorced and remarried and all these other problems. Their children are terrors and they, on and on and on they go. Our pastor, I mean, his, he's had this and this and this and this. I said, did you know that when you joined the church? Well, no. I said, you should have found that out before you joined the church if you have trouble with that. Now, why would you have trouble with that? Well, it just doesn't seem right. Here we are, back to humanism again. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because I said it's wrong. Who, well, how do you know it's wrong? You know, but I just don't think it's right. Instead of saying the word of God says, but the scripture says, know them that have the authority over you. Scripture says these are the qualifications. Check out those qualifications. If they're not there, don't follow them. Paul the apostle said, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's saying, if I get off the track, quit following me. You see? How many of you understand that principle here? Paul says, now, I want you to know these things and to have them your convictions, and you can have those convictions because you can have confidence in where they came from. Turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, beginning of verse 7. Paul was writing to the church of Galatia. He had led them to Christ and then left, and some other Hebrew believers came in who were telling them they had to be circumcised in order to be genuine Christians. Verse 6, let's start at verse 6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul the Apostle says, now I preached to you and I'm the, ones that led, I'm the one that led you folks to Christ. But if even I come back and preach to you any other gospel than the gospel I gave you when I came the first time, or even if an angel come and preaches another gospel, he said, let them be accursed, let me be accursed. And we said, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now, that's powerful. If you were to say today to a person, if you're going to listen to any other preacher that preaches anything inconsistent with this word, let them be accursed. If somebody teaches you something other than the gospel you have received from me, let them be accursed. Now that's powerful. That's powerful. How many people today are preaching what Paul said, for example, about marriage and divorce and remarriage? How many people are preaching what Jesus said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Now that really scares me. When I hear Paul say, if anybody comes to you now and preaches any other gospel than the one that I preach to you, let them be accursed. When I talk about the gospel, I'm talking about the merits of salvation. I'm talking about whether a person is saved or lost. I'm not talking about little side issues, but the gospel of being Redeemed, how a man is redeemed and saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. 
The good news. That's right. The good news of Jesus Christ. That we must repent of our sins and receive eternal life through Jesus Christ, making him our Lord and Master. And whatever this says becomes the order of our life. Now Paul says to the church of Galatia, if anybody, anybody, I don't care if it's even an angel or if it's even me, if we come back and teach you something contrary to what I've taught you, now the reason that's so important is because Paul says what I taught you, exactly that same message you teach, don't change it, don't try to improve it, don't try to make it more palatable. The message that I've given you, you take it and teach it to other men and they in turn are not to change it, they're not to give any new innovations to it, they're to preach that same message to the next so that ten generations down, Paul says, I can come and know that that tenth one is saying the same thing that I said in the beginning. If anybody preaches any other message than what I have preached, let them be accursed. I didn't say it. Paul the Apostle said it to the church of Galatia. Turn to Hebrews 13. We have to be zealous to hear and obey spiritual counsel. Hebrews 13, verse 7 again. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. Now, first of all, where it talks the rule over you, it's talking about spiritual authority, who have preached unto you. That's evidently pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, and prophets. He said, to remember them, how to remember them, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow or imitate. Well, let me tell you something. That's why Paul says it's so important that you know the person that you're listening to preach. I've had a lot of Christians come and say, oh, this message and this ministry is so powerful and they're seeing all these miracles and everything. I said, tell me about the person. Well, I know this and this and this and this. And I said, well, then I'm not, I'm not too excited about what's going on. It doesn't make a difference what they say. Look at their lives. Paul said, here are the qualifications for those in leadership. He gives these qualifications. You know, not a one of them says anything about miracles or gifts or any of those things. Not one. Isn't that amazing? When he talks about qualification for ministry, you'd, you'd think that he would have, be able to say, when he'll touch you, you'll go down under the power. When he blows on the whole audience, they'll all fall to the floor. Now, those are the qualifications for spiritual leadership. When he, he preaches to you and guarantees you, you'll be able to give a dollar, you'll get a hundred dollars back. It doesn't say that as a qualification for leadership. It says the reason this is so important, the ones that have spoken unto you, their lives should be such that you can follow their lives. I want to tell you something. It doesn't make a difference what I can say whatsoever. What I say or what I can do means nothing. It's how I, I operate my life every day. And the same thing is true as you as mom and dad's in your home. You can say all you want to. You can punish all you want to. You can correct all you want to. You can do everything you want to. But your kids are going to see what you are. What you do speaks so loud they won't hear what you say. I want to tell you something. It's true in the church. Paul says, remember those that have the authority over you that have preached the word of God to you whose faith imitate considering the end of their conversation. In other words, you, however they live, you try to trust the Lord like they do. I want to tell you something. When I lived in Minnesota years and years ago, I, wasn't, I didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that I did. And I was supposed to be a member of the Christian Missionary Alliance when I graduated from school, but then I went out into interdenominational evangelism, then I joined a Baptist church. And Beverly and I were going through a tremendous struggle one time. And I really needed some counsel. I really needed some help. And I didn't know where to turn. I was getting desperate. And I said, Beverly, I said, I realize I don't, I don't even have a pastor. 
And I said, I got to pray about this. And I went in the bedroom and I started praying and God spoke to my heart and said, you go see Gordon K. Peterson over in Minneapolis. Well, here was a Pentecostal preacher that I had known for years, sung on his television program. But the thing that I knew, that I knew, that I knew, that man may have jumped 20 feet in the air and he would shout and scream and he didn't have a big education or anything else, but that man walked what he talked. His life was right. His kids were in order. His family was in order. His wife loved the Lord. His wife knew her place in the ministry and was able to just be a, a blessing in the church. But, and God just says, go and talk to that man. And I began to realize, you know, it's so important when the crisis comes to know where to go. It's an interesting thing in the years of our ministry. It's an interesting thing that, that happens over and over again. People that have either attended our church or left our church, wherever we were, when they got in extremely tight spots, how many of them would come and knock on my door and say, Pastor, I really need spiritual counsel. And you know what the first tendency is? Well, who's your pastor? And I thought, whether they know it or not, when they do this, they're actually saying, I am beginning to realize that here's where I need spiritual counsel. But they don't even realize, they aren't even aware of that. I went to him in that time because I knew that I could trust him as a spiritual authority to lead me and give me guidance in, in my decisions. And that's why I keep saying to people, who's your shepherd? See, some people think, well, are you saying that to promote your own self? No, that is such an important spiritual truth to find out who your shepherd is because when the chips are down and when the storm comes, you've got to have confidence in that person. Paul the Apostle said to Timothy, know who you heard it from. And what you heard, don't change. This is what the Word says. And don't tell the other man, don't change what you heard. Continue preaching. Listen to spiritual counsel and obey it and follow it. And then in the 17th verse of that same chapter, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. Now you see, this puts the, the person who's in spiritual authority. Paul says, Timothy, I'm your spiritual authority. He, now he says, obey my, me. Do what I tell you to do, because I have to answer for your soul. Now may I just be really honest with you? I still don't know exactly the full depth of what that means, but I, I'll tell you, it sure jerks the slack out of my conversation. That's why when people call me and say we're leaving the church, I have to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I release them to you. You help them find where them help them find themselves and where they belong. You say we release them? Yes. When they come into this church, I take on the responsibility for the Lord to be praying for them and to be counseling with them and asking the Lord for discernment to know how to minister to them if they have a problem. See, I have to answer for your soul. Read it. I didn't write it. That's what it says, isn't it? As they that must answer for your soul. Anybody here want to volunteer to answer for the souls of everybody in this church? You say, boy, it must be nice to be able to have people, souls to be answered. I want to tell you something. If you think it's nice to be in that position of authority, think about the position of responsibility. See, to whom much is given, what? Much is required. Evidently, the Lord feels this is all the responsibility I can take. I don't know. But if he thinks I can take more, then I'm believing he's going to bring the more responsibility to me. 
But the thing that we need to be zealous about is obeying spiritual counsel. Wherever you get it, just, just make sure that when you get the counsel, it's where God told you to get the counsel. See, that way, when I say that to you, I'm not promoting me. I'm saying wherever you go, if you don't stay here, if you go somewhere else, wherever you go, you have a responsibility to God, first of all, to check out that other person that's in the ministry and don't submit yourself until you know that you can submit yourself to them. Know that they've met the needs of the requirements of Timothy and Titus, the book of Timothy and Titus. I didn't write those requirements either. The Spirit of God told Paul to write them down twice. And if they don't, then don't stay there. Go until you find where God wants you to be. Now you see, in saying that, I'm simply saying, if this is where you are, in by being here, you're saying, this is where I feel I should submit to spiritual authority. Now, Pastor Weber, you saying that we're to blindly do everything you said? No, I just finished saying, whenever you hear anything from this pulpit, you go home and study it for yourself. And if it's not consistent with the word, come back and say, Pastor Joe, will you please explain this to me? You said this, but what about this? Now, what are you doing? Being pro uh, troublemakers, aren't you? No. The word of God says you're being like the Bereans. You're more noble than the regular Christians. You're smarter than the average bear. There's a difference between coming and saying, Aha, I caught you. Yeah, I really messed you up this time. The difference between that saying, Pastor, you said this, but I... This says, I don't understand this. Now, let me tell you something. We may, there may be differences of opinion on side issues. But I'm talking about, when he talks about the gospel, I'm talking about what he said about salvation, the essentials of salvation. Very important for us to understand. In Jeremiah, the 35th chapter, there's an incredible story here. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 35 and said, go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. He took Azaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brethren and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the sons of Igdaliah, the, the man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Masaliah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. Now here was the prophet of God saying to the Rechabites, taking them into the temple, sitting them down, and setting wine before them. He says, Here, let's all just have a drink. I just said that you're to obey spiritual teaching, didn't I? Verse 6, But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither shall ye, neither ye nor your sons forever. And then, over in verse 13, God responded to this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will ye not receive instruction to, to hearken to my word, saith the Lord? The word of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For unto this day they drank none, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye hearkened not unto me. Verse 16, Because the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people had not hearkened unto me. 
Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll bring upon Judah and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken unto you, but they have not heard, and I have called unto them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he hath commanded you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. Now, Jeremiah was God's prophet. But you see, here was, this shows you some authority. I've been talking about my authority tonight, haven't I? As a pastor, my responsibility and my authority. Given to me by the word of God. But now it turns around and here were some Rechabites that would not obey the prophet of God. Why? Because one who had more authority over them had already spoken to them a principle that they would not violate. Christian fathers have a tremendous position of spiritual responsibility and authority. When they establish biblical principles in the home, their generations to come should be able to respond to those principles. Now, if the fathers are submitted to those in spiritual authority, they will learn these principles that I've been talking about and they will take them home and transfer them to their children. See, Jeremiah did not want them to, to drink wine. He just wanted to give that as an example as to what a conviction really was in the life of a family. I was actually in a meeting, business meeting in Minnesota years ago of a church. The pastor and all the officers invited me to one of the top clubs in St. Paul, Minnesota to talk about raising $400,000 for the church. And as we sat down to lunch, I was sitting next to the pastor and they started around and the officers of the church started ordering their drinks. I'll have a Bloody Mary, I'll have a this and I'll have a that and margarita and came on around to me and I said, I'll have a 7-Up. They said, oh, come on, have a... I said, no, thank you, I really don't care for it. They said, well, you know, we don't feel that it's wrong for Christians to drink. I said, well, I know the verse that you use is all things done in moderation. And I said, I might be able to be moderate in all these things, but I don't know about the next generation or my children, if they could be moderate. And Paul says that eating meat or drinking wine or any other thing causes a weaker brother to stumble. I'll not do it as long as I live. Does that mean I can't do it? No, it means that I won't do it for love's sake. You and I may learn a lot of things, but until it becomes a conviction in our heart, it'll never change our lives. That you and I will not be strong in our convictions if we, first of all, do not recognize spiritual authority, and secondly, realize that we operate by spiritual authority. You know, unless... The wife gives a submissive will, a heart, to the husband. He doesn't really have authority in his home. God may say he has authority, but if the wife doesn't agree, how many of you know, father, husbands, that wife, uh, that submission is all, all submission is voluntary. You know that. I want to tell you something. I've I've been in ministry long enough to know there are many wives that are much sharper than husbands. Very, very much more capable in many cases. But I have seen women, because the word of God says it, who have submitted to the spiritual authority of their husbands, even when it was difficult, even when they made mistakes, even when they fell short. And I want to tell you something. God honors that kind of faith. 
When those that are in authority over you do things that are not pleasing to you, you have the right to call out to your heavenly Father and ask Him to work in behalf of you in, in the case of your spiritual authority. Now you see, if spiritual authority doesn't work in the home, it probably isn't going to work in the church either. Because if the wife doesn't want to submit to the husband, then the husband probably doesn't want to submit to spiritual authority in the church. And the kids don't want to submit to the mom and the dad. So you got rebellion all the way up the line. But when it operates and functions as it ought to, it starts at the top and we quickly and gladly with zeal obey spiritual authority. The husband can say, honey, we shouldn't do this right now as a, in our home because we're just not ready financially and so forth to do it. And she can say, well, honey, I'll continue to pray with you and whenever you feel it's right, we'll do it. Or she can say, I'm sorry, I want it now. What are you going to do? Get real honest. What are you going to do? Remember that old song, there's a woman in the church, oh Lord, and she won't do right? Well, what are you going to do? You aren't going to do nothing. You're just going to let the church roll on. That's the attitude that many people have. All spiritual authority has to be voluntary. Your children, how many of you know you can tell your children what to do, you can beat your children, make them do what you want them to do, but one of these days that isn't going to work. It's got to come from within. Submission to God. That's why when I used to punish my children, I used to say, God's word says I have to do this to be obedient to him. The Bible says children obey your parents in the Lord. And it says that parents are to correct their children. I don't enjoy doing this. It's a responsibility I have to answer to God for. And so I'm doing it because I want to be obedient to God. That way they never got mad at me. And they didn't dare get mad at God. And after I was through correcting them, I'd love them and say, darling... I just want you to be the very best that God has ever had. I want you to be so obedient to the Lord in the days ahead, and I want you to learn how to be obedient by being obedient to me. I explain that to my children over and over and over again. But I want to tell you something. If you're in a home where mom and dad don't get along, and wives don't submit to their husband, and I'm not talking about you will submit that attitude, but I mean pray for the husband, encourage the husband, realize that, that they have to pray and ask God for the answer. Let the husband be praying for the wife and with the wife. If you're not praying with your wife, I'm telling you something right now, you're leaving her exposed spiritually. You're leaving her exposed spiritually where the enemy can really get at her. Well, I don't know how to pray. When are you going to learn? You'll never learn any younger. We were so busy in our schedule many times, the only time we could do it before we would wake up in the morning or before we went to sleep at night, I'd have Beverly come over and put her head on my shoulder. And I'd pray with her. And we'd pray for all the different things that we knew were the needs that we were, we were facing at that time. And sometimes she'd pray. And sometimes I'd pray for her. And she'd pray for me. I want to tell you something. That'll do something for your marriage that nothing else will do. Lord, I start praying, Lord, now we're having this problem with our children. Give us wisdom and help us to really be of one heart and one mind and one spirit in this matter. Now, Lord, we got this financial problem. Give us wisdom and discernment. Help us not to make any foolish steps or anything. Lord, you give us wisdom. Now, when you do that together... The Spirit of God begins to mold you more than anything else can mold you together. But when you submit, see, I'm just simply talking tonight about pastor's authority. It won't work if there's no, no responsibility and authority within the home. That's why I said the home is the basic unit of all of society. When the home is in order, the nation's in order. When the home is in order, the church is in order. God just simply put those authorities there. Now, let me tell you something. It's easier. How many of you know, dads, it's easier to let things slide for the moment? Well, I'll deal with that later. 
And then when you do deal with it, it's a lot worse. The same thing that pastors many times tend to do. Well, I'll deal with that later. You know. Maybe the Lord will correct them. Maybe the Lord will get them straight up. And there's sometimes you have to come and say, look, God's spoken to me about this thing, and this, this has to be taken care of. This, this, this. And then whenever I do that, I try to watch the people's reaction, not with their smile outside. I try to get a sense of what's happening in their spirit. The last thing we've been talking about is good for God's people to be what? Zealous. Galatians 4.18. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And we said that uh, according to Vine, zeal is an uncompromising partisan or supporter. A loyalty to a, to a cause or to a person and to take a very warm interest in it. I said it's not clapping it's not dancing, it's not shouting, it's not fasting, it's not hugging, it's not lifting our hands. Those things don't prove anything. Like the old license plate says, if you love Jesus, don't honk tithe. Anybody can honk their horn. There's something beyond it. Jesus said, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Real zeal means that we are committed to doing the will of God Every single day. And uh, we talked about the different aspects of it. We said that, uh, first of all, we are to hate what? Sin in every form. We absolutely have to learn to hate sin. If you love God, you'll learn to hate sin. When we begin to snuggle up to sin, you know that our hearts are not right with God because in Him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, the word of God says. So if you and I are going to walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship one with another so that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse us from all sin, it means that we learn to hate sin. Second thing we talked about, and I mean zealously hate sin, not just say, yes, I hate sin, but when sin comes around, feel a rage come up inside of us, a real anger toward that thing, because the scripture says to be angry and sin not. And that's when we're angry at sin and not the sinner. At what they do and not the person. Second thing was to be zealous in our repentance of our past sins. You know, this, this attitude nowadays is, well, yeah, God knows my heart. I did this and that and the other thing. I actually remember a man who was having a, quote, powerful ministry down in Winter Park. Well, I guess it's Orlando, down in Orlando. And every time I'd go there, all the man would talk about was how wild and how ragged he was before he was a Christian, go on and on about how many of these he had known and how many of those he had done and how much of this he had done and everything. I began to say, you know, there's a real problem here. Uh, you, we don't exalt the devil and his works. We're to exalt the Lord and what he's done in our lives. We can say, hey, I was down in the pit and in the miry clay and the Lord lifted me up out of it, but this enumeration and elucidation of all the things that happened in the past really concerned me. And it wasn't, but about a year later, this fellow took off with another woman. And I said, that was the problem there. When I would talk to him about some of the things about hating sin, I noticed that there was kind of a pulling back. And until you and I come to the place where we really deal. Now, and let me tell you something. I, even in these last months, God has brought things to my mind, areas in my life that were affected when I was in grade school. And down through the years of my life, every once in a while I get a flashback, and I get a flashback. And so I go back there and I say, oh, Lord, I remember when that, evidently that's the first time that ever came into my life. And I've had flashbacks of those things ever since that time. And right now I go back and in the name of Jesus, I repent of that 
situation in my life back when I was in grade school. I did things and thought things and saw things that I should not have seen, and I repent of that right now, and I come against any memory recall of that in the name of Jesus, and I put it under the blood, and I ask you to wash me right now. Let me tell you, while I'm praying something, I'll break out into coughing. And I think, you know, this is what the Word of God says is, the Scripture says, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it means emptying out the garbage that's in there and filling up with the Holy Spirit. And I go back there, and the thing that I'm noticing is more and more, those things are disappearing in my life, and yet, hey, I've been a Christian for 40 years. And I didn't, I, you know, I never thought of it in that way until finally the Lord began to show me, you know, again, whenever these things come up in your mind, it's the Lord shaking your cup and showing you what's there, not so you can say, oh, that's there, but to deal with it. Go back and find its root and say, I see the root of that thing. That's when it started. That's where I opened myself to that. And in the name of Jesus, I rebuke that. I renounce that. I will not have that mouth and get zealous about it. Don't let go of it. I mean, just grab it like a pit bull and lock your jaws and say, I'm not going to let you go until you go. Totally repent with zealousness. Zeal, I guess I should say, for our past sins. And then the last one, last time was to hear and to obey spiritual counsel completely. I want to tell you something. This is absolutely becoming a past thing. There was a time when people used to be very concerned when, when the apostles came to the house. I mean, they were fearful when the prophets in the Old Testament came, when the apostles came. It used to be a time when people knew that the pastor was going to come to visit them. The children would all get washed up and cleaned up and sit there and wait for the pastor to come. And they would have the house all cleaned up for the pastor to come in. Now, I'm just trying to show you. Now, can you see the change that's happened in our environment? Nowadays, uh, you can call people and say, I really feel I need to call you. Well, it's just, we're just, no, it's not convenient now. We'll see you some other time. Last night I was in the store. Saw a lady that I administered to several time, and we did everything we knew how to do, made long-distance phone calls, did everything we tried to do to get that person some help. And last night in the store, she turned and grinned at me and just boldly came right back against me and said, we're going to hell together, she and this other fellow that she was with. No, and she, then she said to him, she says, oh, this is that Pastor Webb I told you about. Didn't say a word. I don't need to. But there's no concept in most of the church today and in the world today of obeying spiritual counsel. Now, when I talk about spiritual counseling, I'm not talking where some guy comes up with some voodoo idea, something that's right ricochets off the wall. By the way, if you don't know who your shepherd is and don't know your shepherd, you need to find out who your shepherd is and know him to see whether you can follow them as they follow Christ. And if you can't, boy, I mean, there'd be two black rubber marks going up the road for me if I found out I could not follow someone that's, that's supposed to be my shepherd. But if they're my shepherd and their life is in order and they come, you, you, and I come to them and I say, this is a problem in my life, what do you give us a solution, what do, you, what do you think we should do about it? And they go to the Word and they show you what the Word says, then you need to do everything you can to try to fulfill that much. I've had people come for counseling, I've told them what to do, they'll go away and three months later they'll come back and they'll start counseling again. I'll say, did you do what I told you before? Well, no. Well, then don't waste my time. If you aren't going to do what I tell you, why waste my time? You know, they wouldn't do that with a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist costs them $75 to $100 an hour. Whatever he says, yes, sir. I mean, we will do it because it's costing us money. We want to get done with this as quickly as we can. But I've seen people literally waste hours and hours of spiritual counseling, and they don't have ears to hear. They just want a quick fix, or they want to feel good by telling somebody else their problem again. They don't intend to get rid of their problem because that's a source where they can get attention.
There are a lot of people who seek attention through their problems and never really want a solution. They just want to have somebody else to tell their problems to. And I'll tell you something, you and I will never get anywhere spiritually if we do not receive and obey spiritual counsel based upon the Word of God. And again, I say, when you get spiritual counsel, go home. Write it down. Write down the points. Go home and study the Scriptures to see if it's true. If it's true, then stand on it. I want to tell you something. I am more impressed every day with the absolute authority of this. I mean, in areas where you and I can't even comprehend, it's absolutely perfect. In realms where you and I can't even dream of yet, we're going to see in the days ahead the majesty of God's Word written thousands of years ago precisely describing things as they are today. If that's what the Word of God is, then you and I need to respond to it instantly and say, by the grace of God, I will be what the Word of God tells me to be. Let's go on now to the fourth thing, and that is found in Colossians, the fourth chapter. We need to be zealous to pray for others. Zealous to pray for others. Colossians 4, verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, by the way, Epaphras was the first pastor there in Colossae. Paul sent him to Colossae to be pastor. After he had been pastoring there and the church had been growing, a cult came into there, a part that told people they had to get circumcised and a lot of other things came in. The Epaphras didn't know exactly how to handle it, so he went back to see Paul. Then Paul wrote them this letter in order to try to instruct them in some of these things, that he was with Paul while Paul was in Rome in prison. In fact, in Philemon, verse 23, Paul speaks of Epaphras as being his fellow prisoner. So he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant, and by the way, that word again is doulos, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That laboring fervently in the Greek literally saying wrestling in agony. He says Epaphras has you on his heart so much that like Jacob wrestled with the angel all night until finally he had his thigh touched and it went out of joint. Like Jesus as he was agonizing in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, this Epaphras, this servant of Jesus Christ, bond slave of Jesus Christ, just literally wrestles in agony for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. He said, now, Epaphras has a tremendous zeal to pray for you. Now, if we go through the Word of God, we find over and over again the admonition for Christians to pray. Just turn over to 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter, that same, very next book, the 5th chapter, and the 17th verse says, pray what? Pray without ceasing. Look at 1 Timothy. Go on over to 1 Timothy, and the 2nd chapter, beginning with verse 1 through verse 4, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for who? All men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. But we've got to go from there down to the family. As I've said it over and over again, your home is the smallest unit and the first unit God ever devised. And as the family goes, so goes the city, so goes the church, so goes the state, so goes the nation, so goes the world. 
No church is any stronger than the individual family. So if you and I want a strong church, we've got to establish strong home. And he says that we're to pray for all them that are in authority. Then pray for spiritual authority. Those that are in spirit places of spiritual authority, those that are in spiritual authority over you, you should constantly be praying that God will give them discernment and wisdom and insight and understanding for the decisions that have to be made. Be praying for them that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is a good and acceptable, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 8. I will therefore that men pray what? Yours says always. Mine says everywhere. Wherever you go, wherever you are, pray. All the time. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, the word of God tells us that we're to pray for the unsaved. Matthew 5, verse 44, and when we pray, we're to pray with zeal. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and what? Pray for them that say nice things about you and, and encourage you and flatter you all the time. And amazing, which despitefully use you and persecute you. You know, this is why I keep telling married couples when they're they tell me I can't love them anymore. I said, Well, the Bible says love your neighbor. Can you love them as your neighbor? Well, I don't know. The Bible says love your enemy. Can you love them as your enemy? You can't get away from it. God says to love them and be loving toward them. But you know something? It's hard to pray for somebody very long without learning to love them. If we'll pray for them, God can change our attitude toward them. Then, in James, the fifth chapter, he tells us to pray for another aspect for people. James, chapter 5, James 5, verses 13 and 14. Is, there any, is, an, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is there any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now let me just tell you one other thing here that, that God has shown me when we're zealous in our prayers. Not only should we be zealous, but we should understand the principle of how we ought to be praying. You know, a lot of people ask God, what should I do? And the Lord tells them what to do, and they plunge right into it, and they end up in a disaster and don't understand why. Well, there's a principle here that we need to understand, and the reason we don't see it practiced very much is because we're in such a hurry to get to do what we want, think, we think God wants us to do. And what I'm trying to say is, it's one thing to know what God wants you to do, it's another thing to know how God wants us to do it. And that's where we get into a whole bunch of trouble. A good example of this is found in Judges, the 19th and 20th chapters. It talks about a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. Now, he was not living in one of the cities, Levitical cities, evidently because his wife had run off on him with, another, with other men. And after she was gone for four months, the story goes on to say that he went to get her went back to her father's house where she was, and the father-in-law asked him to stay there for several days, and he stayed, and he said, oh, stay another day, and he stayed, and he said, oh, stay another day, and he stayed. Finally, the next day, he said, he said, I've got to get going. He said, well, just stay until noon, just halfway through the day, and then you can still get away all right. But he didn't leave until it was later in the day. 
And of course, he didn't have an automobile. He didn't have headlights. He didn't have any of the conveniences we know today. So they were going along with a servant and with his concubine and two donkeys. And as they were coming along, they found it was getting dark out. And they said, we've got to stop somewhere. And they were going to stop it in one town. They said, no, we don't. this is not a Jewish town. We'll go on to the next city. And when they got to the next city, they went in and got into the street there. And no one asked them into a home. And they were didn't know what to do. And it was getting later and later. Finally, a farmer came in, an old man from outside, had been farming outside the city wall, came in and asked the guy about it. And he said, well, I'm a Levite. He says, isn't this amazing here? I've come into this city. And even though God lets me serve him in his house, there's no one here that will invite me into their house. Interesting comparison he makes there. So he said, the people here are Benjamites. They ought to be inviting me in. This is the city of the Benjamites. And the man says, will you come on? He says, I've even got my own provisions. I can feed my own donkeys. I, I've got food for my concubine and for you. I'll even feed you if you'll let me come into your home. The man says, no, you come on in and I'll take care of all of that for you. But when he got into the home that night, the scripture says that the sons of Belial came forth. Look at verse 22, chapter 19. Now, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, and the Living Bible says a gang of sex perverts. I think that's pretty clear. They were sodomites. Right, now, by the way, an let me bring an interesting footnote here. If you go back to the first chapter of Judges, you'll find that the Benjamites, when they went into the land, they didn't go in and conquer Jerusalem. They left the land. They were very lazy and indifferent. They just laid around and let the Jebusites stay in the area. They never did go in and conquer. That's why later on God let David go in and conquer Jerusalem. It's called the city of David, the city of the great king. David did it, but the, the Benjamites were supposed to do it, but they were a lazy bunch, and so they intermingled with the Jebusites, and they ended up with this kind of a mess in their midst. They beat on the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house, that we may know him. The living Bible says, that so we may rape him. And the man said, No, don't do this. He said this wickedly. I pray you do not so wickedly see that this man is coming to my house. This is exactly what happened with Lot in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Same thing that happened. And he said, here's my daughter. And he says, here's her concubine. And finally he pushed the concubine out the door. And the men took the concubine and just vilely mistreated her and abused her all night, it says there in verse 25, until the morning. And when the day began to spring, they let her go. And, and then came the woman into the dawning of the day and fell down at the door of the man's house where her Lord was to, till it was light. Her Lord rose up in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. And behold, the woman whose concubine was fallen down at the door of the house and her hands were upon the threshold. And he said unto her, Up, let us be going. But none answered. She was dead. She died there on the doorstep. The man put her on his donkey, took her back to where he lived. He cut her body up into pieces there in verse 29, took a knife and laid hold on his concubine, divided her together with her bones into twelve pieces and sent her into all the coasts of Israel. And it was so that all that saw it said there was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider of it. Take advice and speak your mind. And that got the nation of Israel so upset that 400,000, I think it was, 400,000 footmen that drew sword came to find out what exactly had happened, and he explained to them in the 20th chapter, verse, beginning with verse 4 of the 20th chapter, what happened. My concubine have they forced, and she is dead. I took my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the country, and they have committed lewdness and folly in the land of Israel. Well, verse 9, By now this shall be the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up by lot against it, 
Then in verse 11, so all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, knit together as one man. Verse 13, now before, therefore deliver us the men. Oh, they went to the tribe of Benjamin, to all the tribe of Benjamin, and said, what wickedness is this that is done among you? There in verse 12, now therefore deliver us the men, the children of Belial, which are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and put away the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not hearken to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. They had become so involved with the Jebusites, they were more interested in protecting them than they were going along with the rest of their brethren. Well, the long and short of it was the people of Benjamin came out to Gibeah and went into the city to protect it against the rest of Israel. Now, it's interesting, they had 26,000 men plus the 700 that were in Gibeah. 26,700 men. Verse 17, the men of Israel beside Benjamin were numbered 400,000 men that drew sword all of these were men of war. And the children of Israel rose up and went to the house of God and asked counsel of God and said, Which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. That's all they asked him. Who should go first? He said, Judah. You know, they said, Huh, only only got 26,700 people. We got 400,000. This is going to be a wipeout. No problems whatsoever. This is going to be the mother of all battles. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel put themselves in array to fight against them at Gibeah. And the children of Benjamin came forth out of Gibeah and destroyed down to the ground of the Israelites that day twenty and two thousand men. You got wiped out. You say, boy, they're trying to do what God told them to do. And he said, who's going to go first, Lord? And he said, well, Judah's going to go first. That's all they asked him. So they went back. Verse 22, and the people, the men of Israel encouraged themselves and set their battle again in array in the place where they put themselves in array the first day. They said, Look, that was just a fluke. We're going to go back and we're going to line up just like we did yesterday. And this time we'll really whip the socks off. The children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until even and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up again to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother? The Lord says, Go up against him. They'd come a little bit further. The first time they just said, Who should go first? Judah. The second time they were weeping a little bit about it. Notice the progression here. And the children of Israel came near against the children of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went forth against them out of Gibeah the second day, and destroyed down to the ground the children of Israel again, again, 18,000 men. All these drew the sword. That's 40,000 men that died now. Now, this is getting serious. 10% of their army was gone. And all the children of Israel, all the people went up, now watch, and came unto the house of God and wept and sat there before the Lord, and fasted that day until even, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the children of the Lord inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. They began to get serious and say, Lord, what are we doing wrong? How are we supposed to do this? What's the right thing to do? And Phineas, remember Phineas, Eli's son, was later killed. The son of Aaron stood therefore it, before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into thine hand. You see, when Israel was ready to get to a place where they were ready to humble themselves and begin to weep and to begin to fast before the Lord and then to inquire of the Lord, Lord, show us what's in our lives. What is it that's keeping us from being able to have the victory we're supposed to have? How should we go up against them? Give us guidance and direction how we can do it. Give us the wisdom that we need. They knew what they were supposed to do, but they didn't know how they were supposed to do it. And Israel sent leers in wait around Gibeah, ambushes. They started using strategy. They didn't go out there the next day and say, well, now it's not going to happen the third time. We're going to line up just like we did before. They began to realize that that wasn't the wisest thing to do, and the Lord gave them wisdom. 
And the children of Israel went up against Israel, or the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in array. And they began to retreat as the Benjamites came out again. They began to retreat suddenly. And there was a road, they, could, they ran up that road until it went off to, one goes to Bethel and the other goes to another town. Can't remember the name of the other town. And when they got to that point, the ambushes, the men in ambush, first of all, came out and went into the city and 10,000 men came out of another ambush and lined up behind the Benjamites. So they couldn't get back to the city quickly enough. And they looked back and the city was beginning to burn. They destroyed all but 600 of all the men of Benjamin and destroyed all the cities of the Benjamites. Wiped out the tribe of Benjamin except for 600 soldiers that fled way up into another part of the country and hid themselves. And afterwards they said, you know, we've almost literally wiped out a whole tribe of Israel. And they said, before this battle ever began, cursed be anyone that gives a Benjamite a wife. So they had to work out another thing and have a Sadie Hawkins day. They said, well, now this other group of people over here on a certain day of the week, their daughters go out in the fields and dance. You lay an ambush there. When they go out there and dance, you run out and grab whichever one you want and drag her away. And then they went to the to those people and said, now when that happens, don't get all upset. These men have got to have wives. And we've already said we can't give them our wives because if we do, we'll be cursed. That's the only way the tribe of Benjamin ever got the people back. But the thing I want you to see here, when we're zealous in our prayers, many times God will allow circumstances to come into our life, first of all, for us to examine ourselves, whether we're right with God or not. There are a lot of people that are very upset with the fact that things aren't going the way they want them to, and that God isn't answering the prayers the way they want them answered, and they fail to turn that spotlight around on themselves and say, Lord, you show me what it is that's blocking you from being able to answer prayer. You know, God said in the Old Testament, he said, it's your sins that separate me from you. I want to get to you. I want to fellowship with you, but it's your sin. And when the nation of Israel began to really weep before the Lord and fast and search their own hearts and seek wisdom and direction from God. Then God gave them the victory. And so when we're, when we're praying and we want to see answers to prayer, we have to wait upon the Lord. You see, I keep telling people, God says in due season, not our season, His season, His due season, things will work out if we faint not. There are a lot of people that just give God a deadline and expect that God's going to either have to produce or else we're just not going to do anything more for Him. Well, let me tell you something. We are definitely, unequivocally, the loser in that case. Because the trial of your patience being much more precious than gold that perisheth is the advantage for us. When God does not bring to us the answer that we seek immediately, it's for our good. And if we'll wait on the Lord and trust in Him implicitly, regardless of the circumstances, He's promised in the end we'll come out ahead. God wants us to be zealous. Zealous in our prayer in our prayer for others. And I trust that the Lord is laying it on your heart to be praying for the leaders of this world and praying for the spiritual leaders and praying for the heads of the families and that, that these things will be a constant reminder to you not just to do it, but to do it with great zeal. Now, if you thought that tomorrow you could start making $10,000 a month if such and such happened, you could probably get very zealous in your prayer. God, I just claim it, I rebuke Satan, I bind the devil, I bind all powers, you know, on and on. We get real zealous because it, we consume it upon our own lusts. But when it comes to day by day saying, Lord, let us have peace so we can live peaceful lives. Let us continue to be able to preach the gospel. Release the message of the gospel in this nation and around the world. Open doors like you've never opened them before. Give wisdom to our leaders, Lord, so they'll know the right decisions so that we can come up with the type of lifestyle we can continue to preach the gospel. This sort of, can we get excited about that kind of praying? 
Let me tell you something. Prayer is not always exciting. It's labor. It's work. That's why a lot of people don't like to do it. But I'll tell you something. God pays good salaries. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Why? Because we have strength from within. Not based upon our circumstances, but from within. The peace of God that passes all understanding keeps our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We can go around singing in the midst of the storm, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Why? Because we've just heard from heaven and everything's all right. 